All right. We'll open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Now, as I do every Sunday morning, I throw this out as a reminder once in a while. Uh, as I do every Sunday morning, we're going to go through a little bit uh, of a, re- uh, a review, if you will. We're going to back up a little bit, and I do that so as to bring our minds back into the context. Uh, that is very important. I don't just want to blow through scriptures. We want to know what they mean, what the context is, and so we have a better understanding of God's Word. Now, back in verse 10, verses 10 and 11, Paul made it very clear that he wanted his life to resemble the life of Jesus Christ. But then he went right into verses 12 through 14, where he states there three times that he has not arrived at that goal. He says there, starting in verse 12, he says, not that I have already obtained all of this. And then he says, or have been made perfect. And then in verse 13, uh, he says, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. And so with Paul saying that, uh, there's, hey, look it, there's no way that I have reached this point because I still fall short. He says, once again, in those same verses, verse 12, he says, what do I do? I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Verse 13, he says, I forget what is behind, or I forget my past, if you will, and I strain towards what is ahead. And then in verse 14, once again, I press on towards the goal to win the prize. And so the Apostle Paul shares that he lived his life in pursuit of his spiritual goals. He wanted to be everything that God wanted him to be. But because he had not reached that point, he says, I keep moving forward. I don't get just to a point and I say, all right, I'm done. Okay? He says, I haven't reached that point, so I continue to move forward. You'll never see anywhere in this text or any other text where Paul feels satisfied where he is at, spiritually speaking. He knows, and hopefully as we all know, there is always room for improvement in our walk with the Lord. Now, here is where things shift just a little bit. Notice verse 15. He said, all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And so he's saying here, for those who possess a a certain level of spiritual growth and stability, in other words, those who are mature, he said, you should have the same attitude. You should think the same way, okay? Paul's point here is that just because he has been sharing his personal desires for himself, okay, his own spiritual goals, does not mean that what he pursued was only for him, okay? He's telling the church, you too should think the same way that I'm thinking. You should be pursuing the same things that I am pursuing, His challenge here is for other believers is that he shouldn't be the only one to have this quest for spiritual, personal growth, maturity, okay? He's telling the church that they should participate with him in what he is is doing, okay? They should be pursuing the same thing. You should be doing and thinking it this way as well, okay? 
Like me, you should press on towards the goal to win the prize. Now, what that also means is, if you flip that around, do not be stagnant. Do not be stagnant. Do not be content with your current level of spiritual maturity. As I stated last week, I don't care if you been a believer 30 years or 40 years, okay? Just because someone's been saved a long time does, that, does not automatically put them at a certain level where they can just cruise on the rest of their lives. It's all good. I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. Well, that doesn't mean there's no room to grow because Paul is saying we're not done. Paul says, I'm not done, and I, I'm personally, as your pastor, would be willing to say, if Paul's not done, we're not done either. Okay? Until we finish the race, there is always room for growth. And then, jumping over to verse 17, and this is where we closed out last week, Paul tells them that following him, as well as following the example of others, is also a great way to learn, a great way to mature. Notice what he says. Verse 17, he says, Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern that we gave you. Now, this by no means, as I mentioned last time, is meant to be a replacement for spending time in God's word or in spending time in prayer. It is something that we do in addition to that. Folks, the greatest impact on our lives is going to be through spending time in the word of God and spending time in prayer, okay? Period. But learning from the lives of other faithful believers is a great way to take in what God also has for you, okay? For example, you know, we can sit here and say, read James chapter 1. And many of us know what's going on in James chapter 1. It deals with trials, okay? We can study the text and we can learn what a trial is. We can learn the benefits of trials. We can learn all those things. But when you see a faithful believer in the midst of those trials, you watch what they do, okay? You see how they react. Maybe you see how they treat the other party who may be causing the trial in the first place. That can be a lesson for a lifetime, When you see people, faithful people, deal with these issues, you read it, it is the Word of God, don't get me wrong, but it's just another aspect to go, wow. It's like they turned it into a movie, you see? It's very important. Seeing someone live out a biblical response can give you a visual of how God would have you do the exact same thing. Sometimes just being around what I would call authentic Christian when life happens, okay? Just being around an authentic Christian when life happens can help push your life in the right direction, okay? Noticing how a person uh, deals with uh, when they're cut off. Something simple happens to us all the time probably. How does that person deal with it? Or maybe when they get accused of something they've never done, 
watching how that person takes care of that. Or maybe, what happens when you see somebody deal with another church member when there's a big disagreement? Seeing these things in the lives of other people are very beneficial. God can teach us through mature Christians. Learning from the lives of other believers can actually have a part and a role in changing your life. I'll guarantee you, if I sat down with all of you today, you can remember something from 10, 15, 25 years ago of something that happened, something that took place, something you watched, some example you saw that maybe changed your thinking or something or maybe is an example for you in your own mind. Whenever that happens, you think of that person. When we see a Christian living out Scripture It not only teaches us, but it encourages us to do the same. And therefore, as Paul has been telling us, uh, this will help us to continue in this unwavering progression that he's been talking about, constantly moving forward in our walk with the Lord. All right, now, with all of that being said, Paul also felt that he needed to give a warning Okay? Beware. That's what he's saying. Please watch out. Okay? He just got through going through verse 17 saying, follow him, follow other faithful believers who are doing the same. But he now tells them in verses 18 and 19 the reason why. Okay? Why does he want the church to follow him Specifically, what does he say, starting in verse 18? He says, for or because, as I have often told you before, and I now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. Folks, since the church began over 2,000 years ago, there have always been people who profess to know Christ. People who claim to be Christians, but yet they live their lives, they have daily pursuits that are diametrically opposed to God and His Word. And certainly you'll find example of these things in Scripture as well. One of the first ones that actually came to my mind uh, were the Gnostics, or maybe you might know it, the belief as Gnosticism. The entire book of 1 John deals with their teaching and their lifestyle because it went together, you see. Oh, sure, they professed to know God. Don't get me wrong. Matter of fact, the Gnostics professed a higher level of knowledge than everybody else did. But you would never know it by how they lived, see. I don't have the time to go into all their beliefs this morning, but John, in his first letter, 1 John, he tells us how they lived. Now, because they claim to know God, but never lived it, and obviously they're having an impact on these people that John is writing to. So he tells them in in chapter 1, verse 6, he says, listen, he says, if we claim to have fellowship with him, meaning him in Christ. If we claim to have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in darkness, 
We lie and we do not live by the truth. I'll just give you one more. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 3. We know that we have come to know him, Christ, if we obey his commands. The man who says, oh yeah, I know him, it's like he raises his hand, but does not do what he commands, once again, he says, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So John, John straight shooter there, isn't he? He doesn't, he doesn't mess around. They're liars. The truth is not in them. And it's not just the Gnostics, by the way. Matter of fact, numerous New Testament books have been written because of false teachers. Okay? And even if, the, uh, and if, even if false teachers wasn't the main reason, warnings are mentioned throughout the New Testament. Okay? And it's important. Remember something that I, I've always said, and I haven't said it recently, but it's this. What we believe affects the way we live. What we believe affects the way we live. So now, here in verse 18, he doesn't necessarily get into what these people believe as far as false doctrine or as far as theology, but he focuses on how they live because it opposes everything that Paul has just spelt out in the previous verses, okay? And this is why he begins verse 18 with the word for. It's also translated because, because sometimes it's easier to look at. He's saying, live this way, honor God with your life because there will be others who will try and dupe you into thinking and living in a way that is counter to everything that I've told you. In other words, there are examples to follow, but there are also examples that you must avoid. I can't tell you how many times that I've stood here at this podium and talked about maybe or mentioned certain people or maybe even pastors or authors who need to be avoided. There are many. All claiming to be evangelical Christians. Because unfortunately, too many times they just stamp a little label on themselves and people go, oh, they're Christians, and they just follow blindly. It was no different when Paul wrote this letter, by the way. He says in verse 18, he says, As I have often told you before, and now I say it again with tears. Okay? For Paul to have had to warn them often of these people, and now he says even with tears, is to say it must have been a very big problem. Not only were these people destroying their own lives, and they will be terribly disappointed when they stand before Almighty God one day, but they are falsely shaping the lives of ignorant believers. They are falsely shaping the lives of ignorant believers. And for Paul, just like many of us pastors, it breaks our heart, folks, to see people go in the wrong direction. It's always saddened to me, and I know to others, 
when you teach people, they've been a part of your church, you've watched them mature or grow and just get sucked into something, get sucked into some sin, following this, believing that, and you're just sitting here going, I can't believe that. But they do. They do. And this is why I, Darren, along with the Apostle Paul, try and warn you. If you've been here for a while, you know you've heard me talk about what the Bible says, false teachers. They are everywhere. But I try and warn you, as he says here in verse 18, that many live, you notice he says many, that's a lot, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. You'll notice once again, he's not getting into their doctrine, he's not getting into their theology, okay, even though many of these people are false teachers, but his focus is on their lives, right? He says how they live. Because so many of them claim to be believers, like I said, they got that little stamp of approval, they, they wrote it down, you know those little things, welcome, my name is, whatever, and you just stick it right there? My name is, I'm a Christian, And then the lazy, not-so-faithful Christian just sits back and says, well, but they do it, but they say it, but they go to those movies. Keep going, whatever you want to do. They live their lives like that. They're Christians. I hate when I hear that. (laughs) So what's the standard? That person or God's Word, right? Paul had to tell the Roman church, Romans 16, verses 17 and 18, he says, I urge you, urging folks, that's like a plea. I urge you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and they put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching that you have learned. Listen, he says, keep away from them. (laughs) There you say it. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving the Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people, or what I simply call ignorant Christians. Folks, with a lack, with a tremendous lack of sound expositional Bible teaching today, That's what you get. People often, Christians often don't know the difference between truth and error. They have no discernment. If you want to pin down one thing, what is the biggest problem across the entire worldwide church of Jesus Christ is there is a lack of discernment. There is no discernment. Some people might get offended by that, but they don't really understand it. We live today no different than you see what's here in the scriptures in the first century. Today's Christians are no different than the Christians then. That's why we need to listen to what the scriptures are saying to us. Don't just go, well, that was just a problem the Philippian church had. (laughs) Oh, no. Unfortunately, Christians don't learn. Okay. And listen, we can even set aside the false teachers for a minute if you want. There are many people 
okay? Your friends, your neighbors, I mean, for some of you, maybe even your family, right? Who say they are Christians, but there's absolutely nothing in their lives that will validate that. It's almost as if Paul is saying here in verse 18, I don't care who they are. I don't care what they claim. I don't care what church they attend. I don't care what title they may have. If they don't live their lives as to the pattern that we have shown you, he's saying don't allow your lives to be led by them. Don't just hear, oh, I'm a Christian, I go to church, and it's okay to follow whatever they do. As as if they're a walking, breathing Bible or something. Paul is saying, do not follow their example. Listen to how Paul describes, if you will, how bad they really are. Notice the very first part of verse 19. He says, their destiny is destruction. Their destiny, these people, their destiny is destruction. Unlike many teachers today, Paul didn't hold back there, did he? So many pastors hold back on what they want to say today that can be completely biblical, but they don't say it because I don't want to offend anybody. Well, Paul just laid it out. Now here is where, by the way, we might understand a little bit of their doctrine. Okay, Verse 18, he says, do not follow how they live, Right? Here in verse 19, we know why they lived the way they lived because he says here, they're not true believers. These people did not know Christ. They were never born again. Well, how do you know that, Darren? Because it says their end is destruction. Folks, I can't, if you know me well, some of you do, I can't say this enough. It does not matter what comes out of someone's mouth. It does not matter what somebody claims. I was just thought a minute ago, you know, for months, Don and myself talk about certain women that put out Bible studies and do this. There are so many you just cannot follow, you can't listen to, you can't watch. It's pathetic. It's no different with guys or anybody else. But they can claim whatever they want to claim. What they say, what they teach, and half of them, what they live is garbage. It doesn't matter what people claim. It doesn't matter how long they've been going to a church. It doesn't matter if their parents were the founding members, or as Ken would say, if their, their headstones are outside the, the, the there's, there's always a cemetery out there somewhere. And like, well, yeah, there's the founding members. That doesn't matter. That doesn't make you something. I'm reminded of Titus 1.16. It simply says, they claim to know God, but they deny him by their deeds. And that's, wow, that's pretty darn clear. They claim to know God, right? Ooh, ooh, that's me, that's me. But you deny him by how you live, the things you do, the way you talk, where you go, how you treat people. Your deeds deny the fact that you can claim it all you want, speak anything you want. It's a lie as... John said in 1 John, 
just because someone says, Lord, Lord, right? Matthew chapter 7 doesn't mean they're saved, does it? We know that from looking at Matthew chapter 7. At, at the very end there, I always love the Sermon on the Mount, but some of you hopefully have written this down in your Bibles because I've stated it before. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. A very important word is the word says. Not everyone who says or claims or professes, doesn't matter, whatever comes out of your mouth, just because you say, Lord, he says, doesn't mean you're going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Very next verse. But only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. See, there's a connection between who you are and how you live saying and doing, kind of like James talks about as well. There's a connection there. Just because you claim something doesn't mean anything. He says, great, claim it, but I want to see it. I want to see the transformed life. Back in Philippians 3, Paul says their destiny is destruction. I don't tell you how many times I've heard pastors say, and I believe it, there's going to be a lot of pastors in hell. There will be a lot of missionaries in hell. There will be lots and lots, millions and millions of people in hell. I still remember many, many years ago when I first got a new Bible. I opened up, turned it to the back, and it has this color-coded thing in the back, and it says these are the amount of people, you know, basically by color, who profess to be Christians. In the United States of America, it said 87% in Americans are Christians. Well, I like to know where they live. Because <laughs> most of us don't know them. But a lot of people profess to be Christians. But he says here, he says their end is destruction. In other words, it's eternal loss. Or if you will, it's hell. People don't like to use the word hell today, but hell is a real place, folks. Hell is a real place where people will spend eternity. I'll tell you what it's like. Matthew chapter 25, verse 46. It says they will go away to eternal punishment. But the righteous, he says, to eternal life. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 it says they will be punished with everlasting destruction and they will be shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. You know, part, this is kind of how I look at this, and there's much more than that, obviously. But this is kind of how I look at it. We know hell's a lot of things. Hell's talked about fire. The word Gehenna speaks of that, right? It's used as the fire of hell. Talks about eternal punishment, where the worm never dies, the fire's never quenched, there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. But also the other side, the other part, the other mindset of hell is what he says here. It says that you it says that you will be you will not be in the presence, period, ever, of God Almighty. None. Zero. You won't even have Christians around you. See, even as a non believer, and many of us like myself, know what it's like to live as a non-Christian. You know, nobody comes out of the womb as a believer. 
But there's some goodness in this world. There's a, a little bit of an experience of God because you're with other Christians. You might meet other Christians. The Spirit of God works in their life. You will not find that in hell. They will be shut out from the presence of the Lord. That's horrible. But yet they claim to know God, right? But their end is destruction. Secondly, he says in verse 19, he says their God is their stomach. I would say the better translation there would be um, the word appetite. Their God is their appetite. That, that Greek word can be used in many ways. It could be used for the word belly. It can even be used for the word womb, right? It just depends on the context and how it's used. Here, I think the context, the word appetite, is a better translation. In other words, their God is whatever they desire. Their God is whatever satisfies them. It's not just the hamburger. (laughs) Instead of self-sacrifice, you might think of self-indulgence. Jude 4 has a very good description of these people. It says they are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality. And they deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Their focus, their God, is on nothing but their appetite, what they desire, what satisfies them. Thirdly, Paul says their glory is their shame. The New Living Translation says they brag about shameful things. This is the worst, folks. This is the worst. They pride themselves in the things that they should be ashamed of. Think about that for a second. They brag about it. They pride themselves. They take glory in the fact of things they should be absolutely ashamed of. They should be hiding their faces And they're saying, hey, look at me. Think about that for a second. It's like watching the Trinity Broadcasting Network, which you should not do. They stick their chest out in arrogance. They should be be doing this. And lastly, in describing who these people really are, here still in verse 19, he says their mind is on earthly things. You can almost say this is almost kind of like a summation here. But whatever title they bestow on themselves, some people love titles. Bishop, prophet, apostle, right? I'm the reverend. Some people love to have titles. It's all a front. It's all a front to try to cover up who they really are and what they really want. I don't know how many times you see people just give themselves these these titles, by the way. All of a sudden, I'm the prophet so-and-so, and people go, ooh, ah, They don't watch what they do. They don't watch the lies. They don't watch their lives, their their divorces, and and all how they treat people. They say, oh, it's it's the prophet. And there's enough ignorant Christians to keep supplying that to them. 
1 John 2.15 says, if anyone loves the world, remember what he says, their mind is on earthly things. If anyone loves the world, and I do not mean the globe, he says the love of the Father is not in them. The point is simple, folks. He's saying these people need to be avoided, not imitated. He said, lots of people can give you a great example. Follow them. They followed me. They're great people. You should, you should pay attention to them. But man, there are others. He says, I'm going to say it with tears. Do not follow them. Do not be a part. I don't care what they say. I don't care what they claim. I don't care if they're your relative. I don't care if they're your mother. doesn't matter. Now, in contrast to all these pieces of garbage, these phonies, these mockers of God and his word, the one he says here whose destiny is destruction, Paul says in verse 20, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul says these words, folks, this is not meant to be a statement of fact. It's, this is meant to be a challenge. This is a point that Paul is making that is to be applied. Okay? The very last statement there in verse 19, it says, their minds are on earthly things. Okay? Now, as I just stated, the love of the world and all that it has to offer, that's kind of what that means. All what the world offers in many respects, those are evil things, right? Greed, immorality, pride of self, right? Or just, you know, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, right? This is their worldview. This is where they take a stand. This is where they belong. They love all that. That's where they belong. That's where, that's where they take their stand upon, but what does he say? But our, includes himself, but our citizenship, obviously this is distinct from others, isn't it? Our citizenship, he says, is in heaven. We are friends of the cross. You might say it that way, as they are enemies of the cross. You might say, yes, we're in this world, but we don't live like it because our real home is in heaven. Just because we are here temporarily doesn't mean that we should involve ourselves in worldly festivities. Just because your neighbor is doing it doesn't mean you do it. Just because the person who says they're a Christian and they're, they're a good friend of yours doesn't mean you should do it because they're not the standard if it opposes God's word, if it gives you a bad witness, if it leads you down the wrong road, meeting the wrong people, doing the wrong activities, and on and on and on. Should the Philippian church, or, or, or really any Christian today, think of the world as where we fit? Should the Corinthian church, should you and I think of this world as where we belong? I hope not. Do we speak their language? I don't mean English. 
Do we have the same desires as they do? Do we follow their gods? You kind of have to think of that old hymn. Many of you know it. It came to my mind when I was just reading that. We all know it. What does it say? This world is not my home. You guys know where I'm going with this? This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up way beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. He tells us this. In our own minds, he said, look at Since you have been raised with Christ, you need to set your hearts on the things that are above. Right? He says, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, that would be heaven. He also says, set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things. What's your focus? What's your thoughts? Who's your God? But you know why he says that? Here's why. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23, it says that our names were written in heaven. Our names, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've been born again, our names are written in heaven. According to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, that's where our inheritance is. According to Matthew 5.12, he says our reward is in heaven. Everything about us, think heavenly. You're going to be there. That's where, your heaven, that's where your inheritance is. That's where God is. That's where Christ will be. You're not a part of this world, he says. Our citizenship is in heaven. He says that's where we will spend eternity. We're only here on this earth, folks, for a very short time. As you heard me say numerous times, it's very real. Our time on this earth is literally like one grain of sand on the seashore of heaven. One little tiny grain of sand. That's it. We think of it, man, 70, 80 years is a long time. Not compared to eternity, it isn't. (laughs) 70, 80 years hasn't started yet. 1,000 years hasn't started yet. And because we're not of this world and our true home is heaven, Paul continues in verse 20 and he says, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. As you know, Christ is going to return one day for his church. Okay? In Acts chapter 1, we see where Christ ascended to heaven. After Jesus Christ died, was buried, he rose again from the grave. It says in Acts chapter 1 that he was only on this earth for 40 days. And then he ascended. Okay? And in that ascension, verse 11, you have the angels talking to the apostles as they're staring there like this. He says, this same Jesus, whom has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. 
in the air, through the clouds, visibly, physically, it's going to come back the same way. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven, because that's where he's at, and with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who have died before those living at that time, their bodies will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together. That's where we get the word rapture, caught up. The Latin word is rapturas. That's where we get that word from, in case you want to know. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds. That's the way Christ left, right? Remember? And we will meet the Lord in the air. And he says, and so we will be with the Lord for how long? It says forever. Forever. So back in Philippians 3, verse 20, the point being, because unlike others... We don't talk like the world. We don't act like the world. We don't have the same desires as the world. We can't wait for the return of Jesus Christ. When all that worldliness, all that sin, including our own sin, we're not above that, will be gone and be done away. You don't have to worry about it anymore. Wouldn't that be great? It's hard to even fathom being in a world without the filth, the sin, the depravity, I mean, everything, it's just, it's gone. We can't wait for that because that is our real home. For the others, this is what their real home is. This is like, this is their citizenship. This is where they fit. We don't. We don't, he says. But wait, there's more good news. We close verse 21. Speaking of Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, hence he's sovereign, he's God, he will what? He will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like his glorious body. Folks, heaven isn't just a home that we're moving to and that's it. It's not like we're just going to have a different location. Okay? When Christ returns, as it says here in verse 20, God is going to transform our bodies to live forever. Okay? Mortality to immortality. We have a glorified body, he says. Now, I can't guarantee people like Ken that they'll have a full head of hair. But, Ken, you will be unredeemed. You will continually, uh, this body that is unredeemed, that is continually breaking down, this, this, this malfunctioning body, it will be no more. And Ken is like me, and he appreciates that. Hair or no hair, it doesn't matter. Our bodies will not be breaking down anymore. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 40, Paul says there's a difference. He says there are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. 
The splendor of the heavenly body is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly body is another. This says we will have a glorified body just like His. We will be just like His glorious body. And because of that, I would say that the answer is yes, we will be recognizable. But we will function differently. I don't know all the answers of how we will function differently, but we will. Jesus, John chapter 21, he still ate food, ate fish, had breakfast. As we know from John chapter 20, verse 19, the apostles were in a room where all the doors were locked, and Jesus appeared in the room. Hmm. He's physical, can eat food, but can just appear in a room where the doors were locked. I'm sure there will be many things that our bodies will change. None of us here really ever experienced a glorified body, so we don't have all the answers to that. But I do think the greatest point is that we'll be home. That'll be home. Hopefully, if our hearts are right today, our desires are right, that's what we look for. That's what we want. That's what we wish for. We don't like what we're in right now. We don't, can't stand what we see in our world today. We don't want to be a part of that. So when that day comes, you, you'll be home. And you'll be with the Lord. Therefore, no matter where heaven is, it doesn't matter. It's not where you are. It's who you're with. So I close. Let me just challenge you with this. Is it obvious today that you are a friend of the cross? Or could you be mistaken as an enemy due to your life, due to your love for the world? Do you live your life in such a way as to not just certainly honor the Lord, but at the same time give other believers someone to imitate? They can look at you as that example? To use Paul's words, is it clear that you and me, that we actually are pressing on towards the goal to win the prize? There's truly a lot to think about in the, our last three sermons through all this, what Paul's going on, a desire to be like Christ. following others, or maybe even being that example. Not being an enemy of the cross, because lots of people claim to be Christians. If you, know, if you know some other pastor besides myself of another local church, go ask him. Is everybody in your congregation saved? No. What about him? He's been here for 15 years. I don't think so. Are you kidding me? He's been there 15 years. And he'll tell you why he believes that. Make sure you're right with God. Honor him with your life. You'll never have, so you'll never have a doubt. You'll have the assurance of your salvation because God has changed your life. There's no greater assurance than to have that changed life. I struggled with that at the very, very beginning. I never knew if I was saved. It always bothered me. Because I still fell short, I still struggled with sin as a young Christian. It bothered me. I didn't know if I would say, was I a Christian? Would I really go to heaven? 
and bother me so much to my friend looked at me and says, you know what, Darren, if it didn't bother you, then I'd be worried. The fact that it does bother you and you want to make sure you're a Christian, it shows me you are. I've held on to that for over 30 years because that was really beneficial. Look at your own life. Are you honoring the Lord? Can others follow you? Let's pray. Father, thank you that uh, we were able to share in this text today, in this section of Scripture. There's a lot going on. There's Paul's life. There's Paul saying, I think you should live like me. Set the example. There's a challenge for us to saying, you know, are we stagnant in our walk with the Lord? Or are we pressing on? Are we straining toward what is ahead? Do we consider ourselves mature? That's another question we can ask through this text. Are we an example that others can follow? Are we an example of Scripture being lived out? Not for our glory, but certainly for yours. Lord, help us to be different. Help us not to love the world. And always trying to draw us in. But Lord, keep us strong, keep us faithful, keep us in your word, keep us around other believers to stand opposed to this world and to say, you know what, this isn't my home. I don't like doing those things. And Lord, I pray we would all long for the day that Christ will return and then we will finally be where we want to be and we should be and we will be for eternity. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.